morning, Crossroads Church. How are you doing this morning? My name is Tyler. For those of you who don't know me, uh, I have the great privilege of being the Lompoc campus pastor here for Crossroads. And what that means is that I'm not normally over here. You heard that right. We actually have a secondary campus in Lompoc, just 15 minutes away. If you live in Lompoc, we invite you to join us there. We are a church of multi-site, but one church. So I get to have the privilege of being the Lompoc campus pastor. Lompoc, we're so glad that you're joining us this morning. I greatly miss seeing you. I will be back with you very soon. For those of you joining us online as well, you heard that right. We got two campuses for you to choose from. So if you've been hanging out at home watching church, that's great. We would love to see you in person, either at Buellton or at Lompoc. You can find more information at the website, but we are so glad that you're joining us online as well. How many of you had a good Thanksgiving? Yeah? How, all right. Uh, who's got, uh, who eats turkey in here? Turkey for Thanksgiving. Turkey for Thanksgiving. All right. All right. Ham. Any ham in Thanksgiving? Ham? Ham? All right. Got a couple, couple hams in here, too. I like it. I see you hams. All right. How many of you do tamales for Thanksgiving? That's what I'm all about. If you do tamales at Thanksgiving, um, again, my name is Tyler. I would love an invitation <laughs> To your Thanksgiving next year, especially if you do the beef tamales, because those are just next level. Um, well, we're so glad that you're joining us. Here's the deal. We've been in Genesis for the past long stretch of time. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, we have ushers in the back that are ready to get you a Bible because we're going to be reading a portion of Genesis this morning. All you have to do is slip up your hand and an usher will give one to you. If you do not have a Bible, this is our gift to you. Feel free to take it home, read it every day, earmark the book of Genesis because we are going to be here for quite some time you don't know where Genesis is, it's in the very, very front first book in the Bible. We've been here for I don't know how long, and we're in chapter 11. So again, we're going to be here for a little stretch of time. Feel free to earmark it as we go through the book of Genesis together. And the title of this series we have determined is Good News from the Start. And if you've been with us along for this journey, you have seen there has been some times where it has gotten tumultuous, a little rough at times of how we determine that the book of Genesis and everything about it is actually good news from the start. We find ourselves at yet another passage like that again today, friends. Here I am again standing before you going like, this is going to seem bizarre and strange, but bear with us as we journey together to find out how this is actually good news from the start. We are in Genesis chapter 11 together. I'm going to read it and then we will pray. Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1 says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitum for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. 
And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language and all of the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for the opportunity yet again where we can come, read your scriptures to learn more about your son, Jesus. God, help us to see how Jesus changes and answers every single question that we have in the Bible. Every confusion, everything we seem to not understand in areas where we ask why, Lord, help us to see your son, Jesus. Help us to look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. And God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Jesus, it is in your mighty name that we pray, and everyone said, amen. Do we have any bilingual people in the room? Bilingual people. All right. All right, first service had more. First service had more. That's all right. No judgment. No judgment. Uh, I'm half half Mexican, so my assumption in sixth or seventh grade is that Spanish will be easy. <laughs> Spanish is not easy. Uh, I have four years of failed Spanish to tell you Spanish is not an easy language. It does not matter if you are part Mexican. You, it will not come naturally. It does not work that way. Little did I know. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but if you've uh, been somewhere where, where the language that you speak is not the primary language, um, even like different accents around here can be vastly different. Like I'll go somewhere and they're like, oh, you're like, you're like a surfer town, California, huh? And I'm like, I, I just, this is how I talk. What do you mean? Like, do I say things weird? And they're like, yeah, you have a weird accent. And it's, it's bizarre when you find yourself somewhere and you're like, I talk weird. I thought I talked normal. It's even more so when you find yourself in an area where they actually don't speak the language that you use and vice versa. You find yourself in a situation where you don't know what the people around you are saying. Uh, I used to work at a body shop. It was primarily, the the language was Spanish. Uh, And let me tell you why. Because I would come in and I would go, hey, uh, can we go ahead and get this done? This needs to be done. I don't like how you did this. We're going to switch this. And although I don't speak Spanish, Four years of failed Spanish. I would walk away. I knew what they were saying. Okay. I don't know if you've ever experienced like, hey, I don't, I don't understand the details of what you're saying. I can get the general idea of what you're saying. There's for some reason this sixth sense in us of like, oh, dude, I know when someone's talking some trash about me. It doesn't matter what language you're talking trashing me about, friend. I will tell you right now, I'll be able to be like, they're talking trash about me. I know it. In the same breath, what's so amazing is if you've ever found yourself as a follower of Jesus in an area where English is not the primary language and you go to church, let me tell you, there is something that is supernatural about finding yourself in a church where they are lifting the name of Jesus high and you don't actually understand what they're saying, but in the same way, you're able to understand and catch the gist of they are making the name of Jesus great. It's one of the most powerful 
spiritual services you'll find yourself in is when they make the name of Jesus great and you actually don't understand them specifically. Language is complex. I don't know if anyone is like me. Uh, I, my wife tells me I either lay in bed and I'm asleep within a minute, I'm out, or I lay in bed and it's like, what am I even doing here? Let's build a house. Like, let's do something. I find myself just awake and I'm thinking. And sometimes you think about the most random things, such as the alphabet. That's a weird concept. Right? I hear you guys going like, why would you think about that? Think about it. Take a moment right now and think about the alphabet. We created letters and took those letters and formed sentences to say things, to describe things that did not have a word. And then everyone does the same thing, but it all looks different. Like, why can't we just do universal? Universal alphabet for everyone. It's so complex when you think about language. I'm up here using words to describe and paint pictures for you, and you are actually able to understand and translate, even if I use a word wrong. My wife says I say words weird, and yet you're still able to somehow know what word I'm talking about. If I use a word that you may not know the exact meaning of it, you're able in context to determine what that rough meaning of the word is. Language is very complex. There's actually a man by the name of Noam Chomsky, and he devoted his whole life to the study of linguistic studies as a scientist. And he talks about how when we look at evolution, you know what's amazing? I can't talk to my dog as much as I wish he could talk back, maybe. May, I might not like what he says, but there's something about talking with other animals, creatures, that you know, like, they're, they're, they don't understand. Like, yes, they may know sit. It's one word, friend. I've already probably uttered hundreds of words that you're able to comprehend. They may be able to adjust to a hand motion, but they are not able to comprehend, like you and I, the unique distinguishment of what it means to have Language And Noam Chomsky talks about how this is actually a part of our genome, is what he says. The capacity to understand language, there is something that was put in us that no other creature has. And they begin to dive scientifically into why that is. And let me tell you, as a follower of Jesus, we would go, and we were actually designed that way from, from the beginning. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, there was language in the garden. It talks about God speaking to Adam and Eve, calling out to them in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve have a response to him. The complexity of language is a God-given gift that only us as the highest form of creation have. And we see in Genesis chapter 11, the corruption of language. We see in the garden, the purest form of language. Let me tell you, in the garden, Every single word was used to the glory and worship of God. There was not sin. There was not corruption. There was not gossip. Everything that Adam and Eve did was to the glory of God and the worship of God, including how they used their words and their language. And then we see the fall, Adam and Eve. Eve eats of the fruit, gives it to her husband, Adam, and God comes down and we see a unique thing. This is Adam's response as God calls to them in the cool of the day. Where are you? We hid ourselves out of fear, for we were naked. 
I want you to think about this for a moment. Up until this point, all language was used to glorify and worship God. And now we have these words that they were able to articulate. We were afraid. We were fearful. And why were we fearful? Because we're actually articulating shame, embarrassment. This is what they're telling God the Father. We hid ourselves out of fear for our shame of being naked. For the first time, we see language corrupted and broken in a way that was not intended to be so. And we see in the garden the use of language for glory and for worship of God. We see pre, the, after the fall, before they get exiled from the garden, we see the articulation of things like fear, shame, and then the infamous passage, why have you done this? <laughs> they it's her. And she's like, it's that. The, they're able to blame, pass blame off to other things in front of God, the use of language that was not intended to be this way. And after they get exiled from the fall, we see the book of Genesis and the entire Old Testament and New Testament, the way that language is used for harm, for death, for rebellion, for gossip. We see it in our own lives, the use of language. Languages we may not even understand and yet we're able to say that that language is corrupted. It was not intended to be that way. Today in the Tower of Babel, we are talking about the importance of language. We see language then in the garden. We see language now. The Tower of Babel, it's important that as we begin to journey together, why is it that God did this? And this is a story that no doubt many of you have heard as you were a kid, maybe in Sunday school. Also, for those of us who don't know Jesus well, we probably have heard some sort of story or tradition passed down about the Tower of Babel and the confusion of the languages. Let me tell you why this happened, and we're going to explore together why this is good news. We see the sin of Babel. And now most of the time what we're going to do is because of our upbringing and tradition that we've been taught, we think the sin of Babel is building a tower to get to God. We think the sin against God is actually building a pyramid more than likely, which if you do any research on pyramids, it's fascinating. Things like a worldwide flood or pyramids being built to the heavens. You see them in all kinds of cultures, but this one is unique where most of the time the pyramids that we find as humans oftentimes are built for the worship of a god, ultimately an idol, or they're built to worship a person, and that's the burial spot where they find their resting place. And yet the Tower of Babel is unique from all of those because it is trying to get to where God is. Let us be like God and get to where he is. Friend, let me tell you the good news. You can't do that. There's nothing you can do. There's no tower you can build. There's no amount of good deeds you can do or dishes that you can do before your wife gets home or the folding of laundry or money that you can give that will build you the tower to get to the place where you can be where God is. It's impossible. And yet how often do we have the same mindset of the people of Babel? 
See, but the sin of Babel was not necessarily the building of the tower. The sin of Babel comes from chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 1. We covered this a couple weeks ago. Chapter 9, verses 1. This is God's blessing to Noah and his family. And he says this. And God blessed Noah, his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, now, follow me here. Genesis chapter 11, this is what verse 4 says. The people of Babel determined to do this. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower which tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Let's build a city. Let's be comfortable in it. Let's find security in it. Why? So we don't have to fill the earth, but we can fill the city. But the command of God was go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And the sin of Babel was let's do this instead, lest we be dispersed and have to fill the earth. Now, but the pride of Babel, the pride of Babel as all of the men and women gathered together, not filling the earth like God had commissioned them to do, but instead finding themselves inside of a city on their own. What is it that they decide to do in their pride? Let's build a tower that will get us to God. Let's be like God. It's not outside of us to do. We have bricks. We have mortar to build things. We could could be like God. How often do we find in our own lives the things that we have and we go, look, we we could be like God. We can get there also. And friend, let me tell you, the good news is that you're not able to. There is nothing you can do to get up to God. It's impossible. But let me tell you, the good news of the gospel is that God came down. What we see in Babel, what we see in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, what we see all throughout the Old Testament is God coming down to his people. The purpose of him coming down is to cast judgment. The purpose of God coming down, stepping down from heaven, is to start fixing things that have gone wrong. Adam and Eve, eat of the fruit. You have to go and leave the place that I had built for you. Cain murders Abel. You have to leave from this area and travel even further east. Increased corruption begins to fill the earth, and God says, I have to come down and flood the earth to wipe the slate clean so we can have a hardware reset. God has to minimize the days of man because even at 31 years old, friends, let me tell you, there's been many ways that I've missed the mark. I cannot imagine if I live 965 years how far off track I would do. God comes down constantly to be with his people, to bring correction and judgment, but the joy of the New Testament and the thing that we find in the person of Jesus that is unique is instead of coming down to earth to bring judgment, he comes down to bring salvation. The whole journey of the Old Testament 
If there's one theme you can trace in the New Testament, it is this repetitious thing that God says. He says, I will be their gods, they will be my people, and I will dwell among them. I will dwell among them. We see, as they're in the garden, God dwells with them, but they're pushed out. We see the temple being built and constructed as they're journeying through the desert to the promised land. They have a temple, a temporary temple that they're setting up every time they stop so that God can dwell with them. But this is not right. This isn't the way God had intended it. The entire Old Testament is all about the plan set out from the beginning of how is it that God is going to dwell with his people like he promised in the Old Testament. We see in John chapter 1, a beautiful, beautiful chapter. We were in John just before this a couple books ago. We go through books of the Bible at, at crossroads and we went through the gospel of John. You can find all of those teachings online. But John chapter 1, it's this echo and call back to Genesis chapter 1. And it says this, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then we skip down to chapter 14. 14, the culmination, the whole climax of the entire Old Testament comes to verses 14 in John chapter one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. In the person of Jesus, every good and perfect thing from God was found in human form and he walked as you and I walked. He breathed as you and I breathed. He grew as you and I grew. He ate as you and I ate. The word became flesh and dwelt among his people. And it seems like God has fulfilled what he wanted to do in the Old Testament. I will be their God, they will be my people, and I will dwell among them. And all of the course corrections along the way, like the Tower of Babel, to get to the place where God can dwell with his people like they intended. And we think this has to be it. But then you're probably asking yourself, Jesus isn't here anymore. How does this work? How is it that God dwelt with his people and now he has ascended at the right hand of God the Father preparing the place for you and I? And it's like, how is God dwelling with us now? If God dwelt with his people in the garden, Adam and Eve, if God dwelt with his people in the temple as they had the temporary temple throughout all of Exodus, And then we see the completion of the actual temple where the presence of God physically dwelt in the holy of holies. God dwelt with his people, but it was corrupted. It was not like it was supposed to be. And you know how I know how? It's amazing if you read the priest garments and all of these areas in scripture where it's like, this is really boring, okay? And that's okay to think that. I sometimes think the same thing. Sometimes it's like, I don't understand this. You're in good company, friend. I don't always understand it. But this one part where it talks about all the clothes that the priest has to wear as they enter into the Holy of Holies, the the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. And they have to wear all these clothes. They have to bathe a certain way. They have to purify them and sanctify themselves. They have to do all of these things. And one of the things is they tie a rope around themselves. All right? They tie a rope around themselves. No doubt people on the outside have the other end of the rope. 
and they would also wear bells. A lot of what they had, it was like they were making noise as they're walking. Think of like a cow in a field, and it's like, I know exactly where it's at. And they would go in, and they would purify themselves and do all of these things, but as a holy God, he cannot stand in front of sin. Sin cannot stand in front of him. We don't have instances recorded in the Bible of a priest going into the Holy of Holies and just falling over dead, but let's make an assumption here, a safe assumption to make. They wear bells so that you hear them as they walk, so that they can go and stand before a holy God who is unable to stand before sin, and they make a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for the entire people of Israel, and they have a rope attached to themselves. So imagine you on the outside of the temple. This was a job no one wanted, by the way. To draw the straws of, hey, go and stand before a holy God was like, oh, man, I don't want to do that. And I'm right there with him. I'm like, man, I mean, I don't have the best style, but I would not want to be putting on clothes with bells and a rope. The reason being, as I'm walking in, I begin to make my way to stand before a holy God. And I drop the sacrifice. I sin before God. And suddenly everyone on the outside of the temple who is not allowed in hears, cling, cling. And then nothing. They cannot go into the temple. They can't just walk in and get the guy. What do they do? This is a job that no one wanted. See, how God dwelt with his people in the Old Testament was not how he had intended it. We see him dwelling in the garden. We see him dwelling in the temple. And then we see him dwelling in the person of Jesus. And we think this is the climax. This is how it's going to be forever. But Jesus says, I must go and prepare a place for you. And the disciples, just like I would have been, says, absolutely not. We got a good thing going here. Like, I don't know if you realize, we fed like five or 6,000 people in the middle of nowhere. You walked on water. And then Peter walked on water. We've seen de demons flee. We've seen pigs run off of mountains. We've seen diseases and people healed. Don't go anywhere. It seems like this is pretty good and exactly what we have been waiting for. How is it that God dwells with his people today? If that has been the goal from the Old Testament, I will be their God. They will be my people, and I will dwell among them. We come to a passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says this. For we are the temple of the living God. As God had said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I don't know if you caught the beginning of that. For we are the temple of the of the living God. Now, th th at first, we might be a little confused because there's things that is lost in the translation of language because I don't know if you realize there's many languages. That's a joke because we're reading the story of Babel right now. There's a lot of languages, and we've already determined language is a very complex thing. So we read that, ooh, almost, almost. 
we read that and we get a little confused. We go like, yeah, it's cool. It's a temple. Like, it's, it's a church. Like, yeah, we're the church. Like, we, we say that in the church all the time. Like, you are the church. And we're like, yeah, cool. Like, that's not what Paul is saying. There's some things that's lost in translation. Remember, we talked about the temple. And the temple, we would think, is like a church. Four walls, and that's it. The temple was far more complex than that. The temple had many inner rooms. And even on the very outside of the temple, there is this fence with a narrow gate that you would walk through. See, as a Gentile, you could go to the temple, but you cannot go into the courtyard of the temple. It was only for the Jews. Any Jew could go in there. And, and then once you got into that courtyard, you would continue to see these little doors. Once you got there, then the women and children could not go into the next one. It was only for the Jewish men. And then they would continue. And this was only for certain tribes within Israel. So the Levites would be able to go in. And then, and then from the Levites, only the priests could go in. And, and you begin to whittle this all the way down until you get to the final room, which was held, which was separated by a curtain nearly three to four feet thick. It stood 60 feet tall. And this was the last doorway to get into what was called the Holy of Holies, the actual present dwelling place of God. What Paul says here. It's a word, naos. It's a, it's a Greek word. The word itself does not matter. What I want you to understand is what this word means is not just temple. What the word means, you are now the holy of holies of the living God. You are the place where priests would have to dress in bells and tie a rope. Where if they sin before God, they would be pulled out by this rope. You are now the holy of holies for the living God. How is it that God dwells with his people? Every single one of us who believe in Jesus and are filled with his spirit are the holy of holies of the living God. And as we walk around our jobs, interact with our families, we are actually presenting to them the holy of holies of the living God. Paul says, you are the holy of holies of the living God because God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Babel, we have this unique story where God comes down to his people, has to do another course correction, has to smite the pride of the people of Babel or the Babylonians and get them to actually go and fill the earth so he confuses their languages. But it says he came down to them. He came down to cast judgment and to fulfill the plan that he had initially asked them. In the person of Jesus, God came down in the form of a man. Why is it that he came down in the form of a man? Philippians chapter 2. I read it last week, but it bears reading again. Philippians chapter 2 says this, have your mind among yourselves, says 2 verse 5, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him. He has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The gospel is that man was unable to go up to God. No matter how many times they tried, The good news of the gospel is God came down to us in the form of a servant. It says he emptied himself. This is a great, it's called the kenosis passage or the parabola or the great exchange. It's the place where we see God not emptying himself of being God or of being a deity, but think of like it's a subtraction by addition. He is God and he adds to himself being a man born in the likeness of men, living like you and I, living the life that you and I were unable to do and dying a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sin so that in exchange, God can apply the perfect righteousness of Jesus to us. That is what the gospel is. That God will dwell with his people. He came down and the person of Jesus dwelt and walked around them. But it was better that Jesus should go so that he can send his promised Holy Spirit that would make you and I the holy of holies as we walk and talk with people around us. Acts 2, we see the great reversal of Babel that men being filled with the Spirit, and now the Holy of Holies is what they are called. Paul would say they are now the temple of the living God filled with the Spirit, and they begin to speak in languages. What's incredible here is that men heard the language, the praise of God in every language that was native. Think of it like this culmination of, it's almost like all of Babel comes together again. Men from every tribe and every nation are there for the Day of Atonement in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, something happens, and they hear praise and glory in their native tongues, their native languages. They're hearing the glory and worship of God. It's almost like God takes Babel and redeems what happened. And instead of corruption and disobedience and rebellion, now we see praise. We see worship. What happens when we are filled and are the holy of holies? We give praise and worship to God in everything that we do. And so often we think God will restore what he had to do. Like the Tower of Babel, we go, what, what's heaven going to be like? I don't know what heaven will be like. But the Revelation gives us a couple glimpses. And we see something beautiful about language. This is what it says in Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. These are all the saints around the throne. They sang a new song. They are saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, this is the great multitude that we see before the throne room giving praise to God the Father. It says, after this, I looked, John is recording this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It seems like the use of the scattered languages, even in the book of Revelation, we see before the throne room of God, this great accompaniment of people from every tribe, from every nation, and from all languages doing the exact same thing. They're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We are now the holy of holies. We've been given this beautiful, beautiful, articulate language that's unique to everyone. Only humans have language. You can look into the deepest of tribes and they have languages that they speak and understand. And the Great Commission is go, make disciples of all nations. Of every language, of every tribe, we make disciples of Jesus, proclaiming the good news that we are unable to get to God. So God came down to us. And the beautiful thing is John portrays this in Revelation as he sees the throne room of God and a great multitude of people. He says, people from every tribe, from every nation, and every language are proclaiming the same thing. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you we thank you for the use of language that although as creation we have fractured it, we manipulate it, we use it for unholy, for unjust, for selfish gain. But Lord, help us be filled with your Holy Spirit so that we can walk as the holy of holies before people. Let us sing praises every chance we get. Let us bless your name and bless others every chance we get. Let there be a little bit of heaven on earth with the way that we talk and interact and ultimately proclaim Jesus as Savior. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your mighty name that we pray all of these things. And everyone says... Amen. Amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?